Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And a big thank you goes out to Dennis T., and to the 13 fellow Saloners who have made a pledge of $1 or more a month to uh, my Patreon account. As you know, for a dollar a month donation, you'll receive access to the live version of the Psychedelic Salon, the one that I host every Monday evening. In fact, uh, my previous podcast from here in the Salon is actually a recording of, uh, well, it was actually my last uh, conversation last Monday night. And in addition, uh, you're going to get to read my next book in little installments as I complete each story for Volume 2 of Lorenzo's Chronicles. And uh, as you know, uh, Volume 1, along with three other of my books, are all available for free, uh, for free download at LorenzoHaggerty.com, and uh, that you can also thank my supporters on Patreon for that. Uh, They're supporting me as I write these books and produce these podcasts. And uh, since I'm being paid by my friends as I proceed, uh, well, all of my work is now being placed directly into the public domain, so uh, they're freely available to any and all. Also, uh, I need to add that uh, beginning on November 1st, all of my podcasts from here in the Salon 1.0 track, which is the one you're listening to right now, well, they're going to be released first on my Patreon supporters' private RSS feeds, where uh, everything from the Salon and, and more, actually, will become available before I post it here on this feed. I will, however, uh, play the first part of each week's podcast where the announcements are going to be. And uh, I'll post these new uh, Salon 1.0 programs here on this feed uh, one week at a time uh, once we get enough supporters on the uh, Patreon account to support my efforts here. So if the $1 a month model doesn't work for you right now, well, never fear, because eventually every podcast from the Salon will also be available on these original feeds for free. Well, that's enough housekeeping for now, so uh, let's get on with the show. Now, for the past two programs, we've been hearing about some of the dangers uh, of psychedelic substances becoming too tightly bound to a medical and therapeutic model. And uh, I think that there have been some sound arguments suggesting that we should closely examine the terrain as we move forward toward a relaxation of the legal restrictions on psychedelics. However, uh, me, uh, (laughs) being a lawyer and all, well, I thought that we should also have some input from Rick Doblin, who, without a doubt, has been working on this cause longer than almost anyone still standing. So if anyone deserves to be heard on this issue, well, it's Rick. As you know, uh, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, my friendship with uh, Rick goes back to, well, even before he started MAPS. And while we've had our differences from time to time, and still have some in some instances, well, I nonetheless respect his on-the-ground knowledge of the struggle to legalize psychedelic medicines. And I also believe that uh, his head is in the right place. So my suggestion is for us to take a look at this situation from yet another point of view. We've heard from a doctor who is part of the Phase 3 study, but who also has questions about what this may lead to. And we've heard from an activist who is investigating the connections between big money, big government, and psychedelic legalization. And now we get to hear from one of the people who is right at the center of it all, Dr. Rick Doblin, who will be introduced by one of the wonderful volunteers at the Palenque Norte Lectures this past August at the 2018 Burning Man Festival. 
And as a little side note to our fellow saloners who don't get the joke when you hear it, uh, well, when Rick and the MC talk about Rick having gone to a little community college in Cambridge, Mass., well, the school they're actually talking about is Harvard University. <laughs> so, as us uh, jokers on the West Coast will tell you, calling it a community college does a disservice to community colleges. <laughs> and I'm sure that little joke of my own will probably get me in trouble with somebody, but hey, if we can't laugh at ourselves, what's the point of being human? After all, uh, I think we humans are probably the funniest things around from what I've seen. So uh, now I'll shut up and uh, let's go back to the playa. I am looking at some very brilliant, handsome, beautiful people. You're brilliant because you are here. You are smart enough to know that Rick Doblin is in the house. Now, you know Rick as the founder of MAPS. How many people here knows a little bit about MAPS? How many people here love MAPS? How many people adore MAPS? Zendo, Zendo, how many people know about Zendo? And we'll talk a little bit about that too. But most of all, you today are going to get a ton of good news. And how many people here need good news? In fact, you're going to come out with a couple specific facts that I want you to spread around because this is such good news that we need to spread. Now, Rick, besides doing creating maps, before that, he got this doctoral degree from this community college in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> you know, whatever. And, and, but, but most of all, we know Rick for what he has done, what he has created. And, and not only with MDMA, not only with, with LSD, not only with mushrooms, but more. And most of all, we now have him. Thank you, Dana, very much. And thank you all for uh, coming here to, to hear and uh, talk with us together. Um, so to start on the theme of good news, um, I want to share some of the things that have um, really surprised me. Um, and so on October 8th, which is a Monday coming up, um, one of the veterans that was in our study, one of the therapists and myself are giving a talk at a conference. And this is a conference that we didn't anticipate um, being accepted to speak at, but we applied in order to uh, develop this uh, outreach, this mainstreaming. But to our surprise, we were accepted. So on October 8th, we're giving a talk at the annual conference of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. <laughs> about MDMA for first responders. And so we, we have done a lot of work with uh, veterans. In our study that we did just with veterans, for political reasons, these are part of our phase two pilot studies, we um, decided just to, to name the study Veterans, Firefighters, and Police Officers. So we could kind of communicate that what we're doing is not just for veterans, it's not just for um, 
people that we might be sympathetic to, that it's, it's for first responders, it's for firefighters and police officers. And we didn't actually anticipate getting any firefighters or police officers, but we actually got 22 veterans, three firefighters, and one police officer. So this idea of reaching out to the other is really being quite um, successful. And so we recently were at the American Psychological Association annual conference in San Francisco, and we had a booth in the exhibit hall, and across the hall, across the walkway from us was the psychologist from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And I was looking at them and looking at them, and I was thinking, gosh, as long as we're right across the hall, I'm going to go talk to them about psychedelics for prisoners. And so we had this discussion about the Concord Prison Experiment, which was done with prisoners. It was Timothy Leary's um, main project, one of his main projects at Harvard, uh, with Ralph Metzner, and it was about giving psilocybin to prisoners before they got released and trying to reduce recidivism. Um, and so I mentioned this study to these um, psychologists for the Bureau of, um, Federal Bureau of Prisons, and they were very interested. Um, but then they said, don't forget the prison guards, that they have trauma as well. So when they said that, it was just this, again, one more sense of breaking these barriers between the us and the them, between um, the police authorities that have been um, oppressing people, that have been um, scaring me. I, I mean, I'm so used to um, running from the police, to speak at a police conference. It's, um, it's going to be very healing for me. Um, we, we just, uh, December 19th, we had a meeting with the DEA at the DEA headquarters, and we have uh, a senior retired DEA official acting as a consultant for us. And as it turned out, um, he was in charge of the uh, Arizona-New Mexico border in Mexico. So he had big, big responsibilities for the DEA. He knows all sorts of people in Washington. But the reason that he got involved with us is that his son enlisted in the army and his son has uh, PTSD and is using marijuana for PTSD. So I think we can look very carefully around at our society and think that a lot of these people that are um, suffering that we might think are trying to block what we're trying to do, if we really look deep into their suffering, a lot of them are really wanting us to succeed. They want to see about new um, healing therapies for their family, for, them, for themselves and for others. So we have this cultural opening that we haven't had ever before. So in the 1960s and in the 50s, when there was all sorts of research with LSD and psilocybin, um, nothing ever reached what's called phase three, which is the final stage of research you need to do before you can get permission to market a drug. And so we are now, in the next few weeks, uh, about to begin phase three for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. We just, um, in, a, in a short few hours, um, encapsulated 9,200 capsules of pure MDMA. Um, I used to spend weeks actually capping MDMA back in the olden days, and uh, it took a long time. And so now we've got this um, pharmaceutical machinery for mass producing MDMA capsules in the final dosage form. So we've spent now um, about a million and a half dollars on getting what's called medical grade MDMA. 
which we have manufactured in England, and then we ship it to Pennsylvania, and that's where they um, put it into capsules. So we are really um, on the verge of starting, and I'll tell you a, a bit about how we got here, and then I'll talk about where we're going to go, and then I'll talk about some of the ethical challenges that we're dealing with, and then, then we can open it up for discussions, because I think the um, this theme about ethical challenges and how we're going to try to move forward, and, um, that's more of the crucial issues that we're trying to deal with now. So what I wanted to share, first off, is that um, I spoke earlier today at uh, Burners Without Borders. And after my talk, I was approached by this really big, strong, older guy, and he just started crying and started talking about how he was a veteran and he was ready to give up. And that he had tried all sorts of medications and tried all sorts of therapies, and he said that he was um, at the end of his rope and that he was so worried about um, taking his life or feeling completely hopeless and he was saying that he had heard about our work with MDMA and we, he was wondering about what opportunities there might be for him to get involved in the therapy. And so that was just really sad for me, but also um, inspiring to, to realize um, that there are so many suffering people who are not adequately treated by the currently available treatments and medicines and that some of them would find their way here to Burning Man and then find their way to my talk in order to just say, um, you know, what can be done? What do you have to offer to help? And so we, we actually do have, finally, um, opportunities to, to help. Right now, um, there's roughly one million veterans in America that are on disability payments for PTSD. It means they are not fully able to function and they're receiving disability payments from the Veterans Administration. The last time the VA put out a number of how much they pay for disability, it was $20,000 average per year for people on disability for PTSD. And so what that means is that if we use the 2004 numbers, there's roughly $20 billion a year that the Veteran Administration is paying to veterans who are incapacitated to some degree by emotional problems from war. And when we think about the cost of war, we don't really think about the human cost as much in terms of the suffering from our, our own uh, military. And these are mostly young people, and these costs are gonna go on for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. There's also roughly um, 600,000 veterans who are also receiving disability payments for other mental health related disorders, for anxiety, depression, and other things. So that when you add that up, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $32 billion that the VA is putting out every single year. Now, we have been unable to get a single penny from the Veterans Administration to support research with MDMA. They're worried about the politics of it. They're worried about criticism from members of Congress. And yet they understand that they, meaning the, the leadership of the VA, the leadership of the Department of Defense, um, they understand that there are large numbers of people that are not adequately treated by the currently available medications. And they want to see what they could do without their incurring political risk or helping so in a direct way. So that's been extremely frustrating. We've started since 1990 to reach out to the VA. 
and we had teams inside ready to do work. This was initially for Vietnam vets, and it would go up to the level of the political um, people who were in charge of the, this was the San Francisco VA, and they would squash it. And then every few years, we would go back to a different VA with different teams of psychiatrists and therapists, and it would always get squashed at the political level. Until uh, a few years ago, um, I was approached by Richard Rockefeller, and he was um, the son of David Rockefeller. He was from the Rockefeller family, and he realized that he couldn't just sort of coast on the wealth of his family, that that wouldn't be good psychologically for him, and that he had to find something that was his own. And so he became a doctor, and then he became the chairman of the board of advisors of Doctors Without Borders. And from that, he worked in Europe with Kosovo and Serbia, and there he found you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees. And these were all people that had been driven out of their homes, that were traumatized. And he was worried, what is there that's available to help all these people? There's not enough psychiatrists, there's not enough therapists. How can all of these people be helped? And he started thinking about MDMA. And so then he approached us and we talked about, um, he wondered what was the most difficult thing that we were doing? What was our biggest challenge? And I said it was our relationship to the Veterans Administration. Conveniently, his cousin was Senator Jay Rockefeller on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. So the two of them started working with us to help us um, engage the VA and the Department of Defense in a dialogue about MDMA. And what ended up was a um, multi-year process of negotiations that ended up with a decision, we had a meeting with the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, his team, the Secretary of the VA, uh, the National Center for PTSD, a part of the VA with people from all these groups. Um, and the decision was made that they did not want us to start with active duty soldiers. What we were saying is that the sooner you can work with somebody with after the trauma, the better rather than having it solidify into chronic severe treatment resistant PTSD. But they were saying that working with active duty soldiers was uh, worrisome in the sense that they're trying to create this idea in soldiers that um, they should only do the drugs that the military gives them. And a lot of these people are young from a drug culture, more open-minded, and they're worried that if they were to permit research with MDMA, with active duty soldiers, that so many soldiers would suffering from PTSD themselves would work to self-medicate. So they said, better just start with the veterans. And so we arranged to um, work with one of the leading therapists at the Veterans Administration who had developed what's called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. And so conjoint means couples or diets. So it's basically it's a cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's where with a couple where one of them has PTSD and it affects the relationship. And so the other person is impacted, and then they bring both of the people into the treatment process. And what they were interested in doing was seeing how MDMA might blend with this uh, essentially couples therapy approach for PTSD. And so they said that the researchers, though, had to work with us using their academic affiliation, not their VA affiliation, that we had to pay for the studies, so here we are giving tiny maps, giving grants to the Department of Defense and the VA, in a sense, um, and that the patients had to come from outside the VA. 
And that way they weren't directly involved. They couldn't be criticized by members of Congress, but they were permitting their therapists to work with us. And they'd heard so much about love drug, get a hug drug, they thought this couples therapy approach would be a good one to start. And so we were able to um, work with Candace and Ann Wagner, her assistant, and we've completed now six couples, and this was called a treatment development study. And it's been phenomenal. This idea, we got permission from the FDA, the DEA, from the Institutional Review Boards to give both members of the couple MDMA instead of just the person with PTSD. So this is the first time um, since um, Rick Strassman in 1990 got permission to work with uh, DMT. It's the first time that more than one person has been dosed at one time. And of course now we're trying to move eventually towards trying to do group therapy as a way to see how we can be um, how we can take advantage of groups and also how we can reduce the cost of the therapy. But this um, treatment development study worked so well that these VA-affiliated therapists are really convinced that MDMA has tremendous potential. And it can blend with other therapies. We have our own method, uh, which we now call inner-directed therapy. And so the concept of our, our treatment approach originated with uh, Stan Groff and others in the 50s and 60s with LSD. And the basic idea is that there's this um, sense that we all know that our body is the self-healing mechanism. That if we get hurt, our body knows how to repair itself. We have to clean out the obstructions, we have to deal with infections, but our body has this move towards restoring the original order. And so there's this uh, wisdom in ourselves, in our, in our bodies, in ourselves, to try to heal injuries. And the thought is that there's um, something similar in the psyche, uh, which we have called the inner healing intelligence. And so that if you can take this as a metaphor, there's some sort of process in the psyche that is moving towards integrating split-off parts, that's moving towards healing, and then there's all sorts of emotional blocks that are in the way. And what we know about psychedelics is that they bring things to the surface that have been suppressed or that have never been experienced and that they can help people get out of um, patterns. But there's an order that things come up with that come to consciousness that we don't really understand. And a lot of times things come through the body. So one of the doctors that we work with, Dr. Bessel van der Koop, who's one of the experts in PTSD, he's written a very successful book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's about how trauma is stored in the body. And so this inner healing intelligence will bring things up, sometimes um, initially in the body, sometimes ideas or feelings, and we encourage people to trust that process, to let things emerge. Uh, an example I'll give is that quite a few years ago, I was, um, when we were, right before MDMA became illegal, and we were working with a bunch of different uh, people, and I was sitting for a German uh, psychiatrist. And while we were doing this MDMA session, his arm became paralyzed, and he was unable to move it. And so we knew that MDMA doesn't cause nerve damage, MDMA is not going to cause any kind of paralysis like that, that there was something psychosomatic going on. And so he was originally quite scared about what's going on with his arm and was that 
um, going to have permanent damage, what was happening. And so we encouraged him to really think about it as a psychosomatic process. We weren't worried about his arm. And so what happened then over the next couple hours is he started telling the story about how um, because he was a doctor, his father at one point was on life support, and he had a meeting with his mother and the rest of the siblings, and they decided that their father would not want to be sustained by machines, and that they would um, sign an order to take him off all of these um, life support systems. And because he was um, the doctor, he had to sign this order. And so, as he was explaining this, his arm is still paralyzed. And then he says, and the problem is I hated my father. And so he, he further elaborated that he was conflicted. Did he actually kill his father? Was this something that he acted out of hatred? Or did he act out of love? Or how was this actually, um, how did he interpret it? How did he understand it? And the more that he talked about it, then, the more he started seeing, thinking that his mother um, was in favor of it, his, his father's wife, that his siblings were in favor of it, his father was really suffering, and that it really was a humanitarian thing to uh, take him off of life support. And as he sorted it out, that he did really act from a position of love rather than hatred, the feeling started coming back to his arm. And by the end of the session, he was fully operational again. So this idea of this inner healing intelligence, conflicts come sometimes through the body, sometimes through ideas, and we don't know exactly why this order is. And so we talk about our therapeutic approach is to support people in whatever is emerging, and to do that in a way that um, helps them to experience things as fully as possible. One of the beautiful things that Stan Groff has talked about is about this emotional process of how you get healing. Many of you may have been in psychedelic states, I've certainly been in them, where it seems like it's never going to end. It seems like you're stuck in these horrible spots, and it's never going to end, and how are you going to move forward? And so what Stan has uh, described for those kind of emo moments, he said that the full experience of a, an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. The, the constant in, in life in the universe is change. And if you can fully experience something, even if it's grief or sadness or fear or anger or a feeling of trapped, if you can fully experience something, then it will change, then it will grow, then something new is coming. So that's the essence of the therapeutic approach, that we have this um, faith that the order that things come in um, is unknown to our conscious mind, but it's something that we should honor and open up to. And that there's this um, therapeutic approach, this inner-directed therapy, which is focusing on the therapist not coming with an agenda, not doing, uh, you know, for example, guided imagery can be very, very effective in um, therapy, but we don't use guided imagery. We want the inner-directed, we want the person to be their own guide. We, we don't even use the word guide, because guide for the therapist implies that we know where people need to go. And we don't fundamentally believe that we know where people need to go, or where the experience needs to go. And so we're, um, we're working in that kind of a context, and what we're doing is trying to demonstrate both to 
treatment-resistant patients, but also to the whole field of psychiatry and psychology and to the FDA, that this general approach um, has merit. So I said before that we operate a little bit on faith, but it's not so much faith, it's, it's uh, you know, there's no proof of this kind of inner healing intelligence, but the faith is based on data. It's based on outcomes. And to see that this approach has produced incredible outcomes. So to give you an example of what we've learned in phase two, we have um, 107 PTSD patients that we've treated in Israel, Switzerland, Canada, and the United States. And these range from um, women survivors of childhood sexual abuse and multiple abuse, so that that would be called complex PTSD. We work with people who have just had a single attack of rape or assault or something like that. We work with people that have had workplace accidents, car accidents, operations, that they've got PTSD from medical problems, and we've worked with veterans with war-related PTSD, with firefighters, police officers, all different kinds of PTSD. And so what we've been able to show in this phase two process is that the therapy that we're, we're working with works regardless of the cause of PTSD. So that was one of the most important findings that we were able to get in phase two because the SSRIs, the only drugs that are available by prescription for PTSD work not that well. They have a small effect size and they work more in women than in men and they failed in combat-related PTSD. So that was a big question for us. Would our therapy work with, regardless of the cause of PTSD? And so it turns out that it does. We also demonstrated that we could work in a safe way. I mean, many of you may have heard that sometimes people take MDMA at raves and dance and overheat and die. And so that has happened. It's extremely rare, but it does happen. Sometimes people um, have heard about that and have heard about drinking water, and occasionally people have drank too much water and died from that, from hyponatremia. And so what we've been able to demonstrate is that those kind of risks are not from uh, MDMA by themselves. They're from a combination of MDMA and the environment. And when we create a different kind of environment in a therapeutic setting, we don't see these problems. We don't see very much in the way of temperature rise. We don't, uh, we don't give people water, actually. We give them electrolytes, uh, fluid, fruit juices, things with electrolytes. We control their fluid intake. We do a lot of medical screening beforehand. The one thing MDMA will do is uh, increase your blood pressure and your heartbeat, so we do screen for heart problems. Uh, we do work with people with controlled hypertension. We do the stress test to make sure they can handle a little bit of exercise. Um, but we've been able to demonstrate that in our setting, we can administer MDMA in a safe manner. Now, that's physically safe. There is some concern that people with PTSD have a high rate of suicide and suicide attempts. And so we have had um, no successful suicides. We track that very carefully. Um, I just learned that we did have um, one person who attempted um, suicide between the second and third MDMA session. I'll explain a little bit more our, our therapy method later. But this, the point here is that um, this woman did this in a um, way that she would obviously be rescued. She wasn't really trying to kill herself. But it turned out that the reason was that she had had such a difficult life and that in this therapeutic environment, it was so healing for her that she was starting to be 
worried about ending the therapy and it being back out on our own. So this was, in a way, a cry for help to continue the therapy, which we're not able to do, actually. We, we have a very time-limited, standardized therapy for everybody. Once the drug's approved as a medicine, then that can be different. Then people can have more sessions or fewer sessions. But we're, we have this time-limited intervention. And so some people have never really been in a loving, therapeutic healing environment. And once you're in something like that, and you feel how nurturing it can be, it can be very terrifying to think about how that might act and people being off on their own. So you know, that that's the big concern that we have about moving to phase three will be, you know, will we have any of these um, really serious emotional reactions? Um, we would, according to the FDA, that we would be able to survive that if several, even if one, more than one people, person commits suicide in our study, because there's such a base rate of suicide in this group, FDA really does take a look at risk benefit, and so that so that gives us kind of hope if that happens. But of course, we're going to try very hard to make sure that 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 doesn't happen. So we've been able to demonstrate um, safety, and we've been able to demonstrate it works regardless of the cause of PTSD, and we've been able to demonstrate something even more impressive, I think, which is that of the people that have. Um, been in our study, all have been treatment resistant, all have had chronic uh, PTSD, um, and on average severe to extreme. What we showed is that two months after the last MDMA session, um, roughly 61% no longer have PTSD. So it's, it's really... So the two-month follow-up after the last experimental session is what the FDA is going to look at, and European medicine agents also. They're going to compare um, the outcomes for our control group, which is going to be therapy with inactive placebo and versus therapy with MDMA. That At the two-month follow-up is what's called the primary outcome measure. But we also do a 12-month follow-up, and that's more for insurance companies, and that's to look at the durability of the effect and to try to demonstrate that the effects last, hopefully, for most people, and also we want to look at what's called healthcare utilization. We want to try to demonstrate that people who have, we already know that people who have PTSD go to the emergency room more often with panic attacks, they have more heart attacks, they have more um, physical problems, all sorts of problems that come from the stress of being constantly traumatized. And so we want to show that there's a reduction, in, well, we want to show if there's a reduction and all of these other healthcare aspects. And so we do a follow-up at 12 months. And what we found at 12 months is that people keep getting better. So at 12 months, two-thirds of the people no longer have PTSD. And of the one-third that still has PTSD, most of them have had a clinically significant reduction of symptoms, even though they still have PTSD. And so what we're finding is that we start this process but then people continue it on their own. Once you've learned that these materials, these emotions that you um, thought were too powerful or too sad, that you might be trapped in them or that you can never get out of them, once you've learned a little bit how to process them, then that is something that you can continue to keep doing over and over on your own. So this, this catalyzes a self-healing process that continues beyond our therapy. So that's been really important. 
um, the other main thing that we learned, um, Dana introduced me by saying that I went to this uh, community college in Boston. <laughs> and um, one of the past presidents of this college um, had this great statement. Um, and I actually opened up one of our meetings with the FDA about it. And he said that, um, never forget, there's always a Harvard man on the wrong side of every issue. And so um, my dissertation was about the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics in marijuana. And one of the biggest scientific challenges of doing this research is how do you fit within the model that the FDA has, which is a placebo-controlled double-blind study, randomized placebo-controlled double-blind study. And that's the method that is actually applied for every single drug to show that it's to, to really evaluate its safety and efficacy. But it's very difficult, virtually impossible, to do a double-blind study with psychedelics that's effectively double-blind for most people. So that um, if you've ever taken a psychedelic, you probably can tell, tell it apart from nothing. <laughs> now, there are a few times when, um, when we... We um, have an ability to give MDMA to therapists as part of their training. And that was a tremendous uh, sign from the FDA that they were willing to really work with us in a, uh, in a fully um, reasonable way. Because as we mainstream from various um, um, very committed original therapists, many of whom have a background in psychedelics and uh, consciousness and change and meditation, as we try to move into a broader world of Therapists, most of them have not done um, MDMA or psychedelics, and, and we feel that therapists are going to be more effective if they've done the drug themselves. It's not that every therapist who's done MDMA is better than every therapist who's not done MDMA, but it's just each therapist would be more effective than themselves if they had never done the drug. So we made a case to the FDA about that, and uh, they agreed. And so we actually have a study where we can take people from all over the world to give them MDMA. And we've had this happen two times where psychiatrists, traditional psychiatrists who work with trauma, who have watched six days of videotapes of um, therapy sessions, who've talked about our manual, our treatment method, who've uh, done a 12-hour online course, who've also come together for another week, in person to learn about working with teams. We always work with a male-female, well, we work with a two-person team, almost always male-female. Usually it could be two males or two females, but the idea is, you know, at least for our phase three, male-female co-therapy team, so that people have been through that, and then they, now the, um, the next step is for them to take MDMA in a therapy setting, and then the final step is for them to work with one patient, open label, meaning no double-blind, supervised by our training team so that they have that experience with patients before they start working in phase three. So we've had two times where, um, and one of these therapists is here camping with us. He's um, the um, chief psychiatrist for the Dutch Ministry of Defense. And he's one of the top experts in PTSD around the world. And so he's been working a lot with all the different approaches for therapy. And so on his first, uh, so, so the way it goes is that um, we have a four-day program. You come in, you get oriented. It's really five-day. You come in, you get oriented. The next day you get, um, it's an eight-hour session. You're either going to get MDMA or placebo and with the two therapists there for you. Then there's a day of integration. Then there's a day 
where the crossover, if you, whatever you got the first day, you get the opposite on the second day. So if you got MDMA the first day, you get the placebo. If you got the placebo, you get MDMA. So twice it's happened, once with this psychiatrist, once with another psychiatrist, that somehow they had this intuition that they were going to get MDMA the first time. And so while they were waiting for this MDMA to come on, they started feeling all sorts of physical things. And then they started processing really deep trauma from their childhood and they started working through different issues and they had these incredibly productive sessions that, that lasted pretty much eight hours. And at the end of the session, um, we asked people to say, to guess, did you get MDMA, did you get the placebo? We asked the patients, often the, the patients, the therapists have a co-therapist there, so we train both at the same time. And then uh, we asked our two male female teams. So in this particular case, everybody was 100% convinced that this was MDMA. And then the next day there was more integration work and it worked really, really well. And so then comes the third day, uh, the crossover period, and everybody's thinking this is gonna be easy, this is gonna be the placebo. And the psychiatrist described how after he took this, this pill, um, after about an hour, he said his jaw just dropped. And um, he couldn't talk for four more hours. The, and he had one of his big things, and I, I came there the day after, two days after this actually, and at one point he was looking at the books that was in the treatment room, and he was going like, book, like this, pointing to his heart, like it's all in here. That all this book knowledge is like, you know, secondary to what's in your heart, to what you're feeling. And so he was uh, very amazed at how what he had been able to do with his mind on the first day to convince everybody that it was MDMA. Once he actually had MDMA, everything was easier and deeper and more profound. So occasionally the placebo does work. And the only other time it worked like that in our therapy training program was another psychiatrist who also had never done MDMA before. So what I had though thought in my uh, dissertation, and I was super proud that I had solved the double blind problem. And I thought that the best way to address it is not with inactive placebo, not with amphetamines or another drug, um, because therapists would be able to tell it apart, the patients would have learned a lot about MDMA, they would probably be able to tell it apart, but I thought the solution would be low dose of MDMA versus full dose of MDMA, and the challenge was gonna be finding the dose of MDMA that was high enough to produce enough experiences that it would be confused in a significant way with the full dose, but not so high that it really became very therapeutic, so that it would become almost impossible to tell the groups apart. So that was my solution to the double-blind problem. And my dissertation committee, including some experts in FDA drug development, all thought that's great, I solved it. So then when we started doing the phase two studies, we tested 25 milligrams, 30 milligrams, 40 milligrams, 75 milligrams, 100 milligrams, 125, and 150. And the way we administer these drugs, it's Always, uh, it's 10 in the morning till eight, till six at night, eight hour sessions. And there's a half, um, at, at two and a half, one and a half to two and a half hours after the initial administration, the therapist and the patient talk about it and we administer a supplemental dose that's half the initial dose. And so what that does is it extends the plateau so that it's a very long session. Occasionally, if you administer it at one and a half hours, it can make it a tiny bit stronger. If you wait till two and a half hours, two, and hour, two hours, it just sort of extends this plateau. So that's our model. And so we were trying to figure out which is the dose 
that we want to do for the control group and which is the dose that we want to do for the, the experimental group. And so the way I opened up this meeting with the FDA was about how um, the Harvard man on the wrong side of this issue was me, that my whole theory was totally wrong and it did not work. Now this might not apply for psilocybin, but I'll say for low dose MDMA, well, we discovered that 25, 30, and 40 milligrams in PTSD patients makes them more anxious. It doesn't reduce the fear. It doesn't really um, help them process the emotions. And they've been struggling with emotions that they haven't been able to deal with for a very long time. And now they're in a situation where they're being asked to deal with it. And they actually don't like it. And they do worse than if they had had no MDMA at all. So we've done a series of studies where people get therapy without any MDMA at all versus therapy with low doses. And so it turns out that the low doses, people still get a little bit better from all this time and attention and therapy, but not as much as if they had no MDMA at all. So what that meant for the FDA was that they could choose blinding. We could produce more effective blinding by using low-dose MDMA, but it would make it easier for us to show a difference between the two groups than if we used no MDMA at all. And so we basically left it to the FDA and said there is no solution and you can choose blinding or you can choose making it harder on us to show a difference between the two groups. And that's what we suggest. We suggest that it be, the real issue is if you can do stuff with therapy, why bother at a drug? So also we wanna know what are the side effect profiles of people going through therapy with PTSD without a drug, too. What is the baseline of side effects? So we learn that better if there's no drug as well. And so the FDA ended up agreeing that that's how we would do it, that we would work with um, therapy with inactive placebo versus therapy with our full-dose MDMA. And then what we discovered, to our surprise, I personally like 125 milligrams. I think that's really good. I don't really like 75 milligrams as a dose. It's kind of halfway there, halfway not. And, you know, I'd rather do more. You know, as the saying goes, more is more. <laughs> as, um, and so with our study with uh, veterans, firefighters, and police officers, what we decided to do was to do three different doses, 30 milligrams, 75 milligrams, and 125. And that was gonna be a way, we, at this point we thought maybe 75 would be a good control. We weren't sure. And so what happened in that study, which really surprised us, was that the 75 milligram group, dose group actually did better than even the 125. And now they were, uh, the 125 group, by the way, works randomly. They were higher on depression, much higher on depression than the 75 milligrams group, so that made maybe had some other blunting effect. So we can't say for sure 75 is better than 125, but it helped us to understand um, about the mechanism of action. And, it, and, and I'll explain a bit later how it modified what, our, what we're gonna do in phase three. But the mechanism of action, many of you may have heard that in the work in the 50s and 60s with LSD and psilocybin, and in the, com in the modern work with psilocybin um, for depression, for alcoholism, for um, nicotine addiction, for OCD, that there's a clear correlation. The most reliable finding is that the depth of the mystical experience is linked to the therapeutic outcome. The more somebody has goes beyond the ego, has this unitive 
sort of sense of connection, the more that they can draw strength from that. People with addiction, people feared of death, they're isolated. They uh, they don't have a lot of that sense of uh, you know, this sweep of history, this persistence, um, this transcendence of time and space, uh, this tapping into this sort of essence of love. They don't have access to a lot of those things. And so, as it turns out, the depth of the mystical experience is correlated with therapeutic outcome for all of the classic psychedelics. And what we know about the classic psychedelics is that the part of the brain that's called the default mode network, which is essentially your resting state where we have, um, it's equivalent to the ego in a sense. It's the closest we understand to the ego structures in the brain. And that's where we sort out all of our different needs, our needs for love, our needs for relationship, our needs for food, survival, work, community. You know, we're always trying to sort through what do we need to do. And this default mode network is kind of this ego structure that helps us figure out what to do next. But it also filters out an enormous amount of perceptions that we're getting, subliminal perceptions, other things that we might be wanting to do, but we don't need to do it as much as something else. So this part of our brain, in a sense, acts as a reducing valve. And it only helps us focus on the core things that our sort of ego structure says we pay attention to. And so um, what psychedelics do is um, they actually weaken the default mode network. They weaken the filtering structures of the brain so we get more perceptions, a flood of perceptions. And then we can see how things are all connected. We, we move beyond this centered around our ego and have this um, sense about uh, body sensations and just evolution and I mean th this idea of how colors and sounds can have synesthesia all different things that lead to this mystical experience and that that's what works and that's why a lot of these therapy settings with classic psychedelics are focused on two things one is bringing up repressed material that people have not wanted to see not wanted to talk about and then encouraging people to have these mystical experiences to the extent that that's possible. And so we've looked at that. We use the same questionnaires for mystical experience in our MDMA experience research that's used in the psilocybin and LSD uh, and Ibogaine work. And so what we've discovered is that there is no correlation between therapeutic outcome and mystical experience with MDMA. And surprisingly, people around one-third of the people uh, in our study had a full mystical experience with MDMA according to this questionnaire. The sense of love, the sense of feeling um, warm and connected, a sense of self-acceptance, deeply felt positive mood. A lot of the things sort of of the MDMA experience map pretty well onto the mystical experience. Um, but there is no correlation. And so what we know is that PTSD changes the brain. And the way it changes the brain and this is regardless of the cause of PTSD, is that the amygdala, which is the fear processing part of the brain, becomes hyperactive. That you do um, studies about brain activity and there's more activity in the amygdala in people with PTSD on average than not. And PTSD also um, limits activity in the frontal cortex where we think rationally. So our ability to rationally say that noise is just a car backfire, it's not a bomb, or that person who's wearing clothes that was similar to the person that attacked me, that the ability to kind of differentiate that that's not happening, that the trauma is not happening again, that gets weaker. People's frontal, prefrontal cortex is reduced, 
they're more motivated emotionally, and it's a very difficult situation for people. And MDMA, in contrast, does the opposite. So if we were to design a drug to treat PTSD, it would be MDMA. MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala, so that the fear tags related to memories of certain incidents or certain um, episodes in one's life, they're reduced so that we can look at the incident, the traumatic experience, in more detail. And people's memory is enhanced for the trauma. And a lot of times, uh, people have suppressed stuff that's particularly um, painful about their trauma that they don't even remember. So MDMA enhances memory, and then it increases activity in the frontal cortex, so we think more rationally about things, and then it increases activity between the hippocampus and the MDMA, I mean, and the amygdala. And so what that means is that the hippocampus is where we help put memories into long-term storage. And so you could say, in a sense, that PTSD, people's traumatic memories are never fully processed. They're too painful. They're never fully processed. They're sort of stuck in this uh, loop that never gets them into long-term memory. And under MDMA, with reduction of fear, uh, with enhanced rationality, MDMA also um, stimulates the hormones of uh, oxytocin and prolactin. And so nursing mothers uh, have more oxytocin. You have more um, oxytocin uh, prolactin when you're in love. So these are the hormones of nurturing, of bonding, of connection, and they're increased. So people have the ability to establish a more trusting relationship with the therapist. They can accept their own feelings more. And so what seems to be happening with MDMA, with the therapeutic use of MDMA, is a process called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. And so what, what happens is that you're able to look at this um, trauma or series of traumas. Usually people, most of us will be traumatized in our lives through something or other, either directly or indirectly. Just thinking about um, refugees, thinking about what's happening to the environment, thinking about um, just being empathic, that you get secondary PTSD. But a lot of us will have actual accidents or abuse or something that happens to us and so roughly 90% of the people that have traumatic experiences do not get PTSD. There's a resilience and we can recover from it, but those people that get PTSD tended to have a series of traumatic events earlier in their life. And so you kind of go through them under MDMA therapy. But what happens is that when you are able to take an, a memory that's connected to fear and the fear is reduced and you're able to process it also into long-term memory, what happens is that memory, what we're learning, it's not like you take a book off a shelf and you read the book and then you put the book back on the shelf. It's more like you have to take the book off the shelf, you've got this memory, but then you have to reprint the book. You have to recreate this memory and that's called memory reconsolidation. And so what's happening is kind of a switcheroo here where you're switching the fear from that prior memory. Now you've processed the fear, you've put it in the past, and the peacefulness that you have from MDMA, and that sense of self-acceptance, that's the memory that gets reconsolidated with that memory of the episode. So that then, the next time you remember it, it's in the past, it's not in the present, and it's something that you can look at with a peaceful sense. And so that helps us to understand why 75 milligrams, 
which um, is this medium dose. It doesn't really produce a lot of the waves of body feelings that we like, a lot of the, the deep sense of uh, just connected to the universe, but it does give people an ability to look at their trauma and to, to um, do this sort of fear extinction memory reconsolidation. Um, Richard Rockefeller once told me about how he sat for a bunch of people and during um, three different people, he said, while they were under the influence of MDMA, he talked about their fear of flying. Uh, Richard was a pilot, and sadly, that's actually how he died in a plane crash uh, about a little bit more than four years ago. But he said that even when it wasn't the purpose of the therapy, these three people talking about their fear of flying under the influence of MDMA, um, at the end of it, they... Um, they didn't think that much of it, but later all three of them were able to go on planes. That somehow or other that had extinguished that fear of flying for them. So what we believe is that the, the, uh, this process of fear extinction, memory consolidation, it works really well. And so our first, so our, our treatment model that we're using is, is three and a half months. And it's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions. Three before the, and there's three MDMA sessions, roughly one month apart. So a lot of people, when they hear about MDMA therapy, they kind of confuse it with traditional pharmacotherapy, and they think maybe you get MDMA every day, or maybe you get MDMA for 20 times or something. So our model is three times only, once a month, well, three to five weeks apart, um, for three times. So it's three 90-minute sessions with both therapists, as preparation before the first MDMA session. And then after the MDMA session, it's eight hours from 10 in the morning till six at night. We have people spend the night in the treatment center. After the two therapists leave, a night attendant comes, who's not meant to really do therapy there, but just to be there to take, to, to take care of them, to bring them dinner. If they feel like the emotions are too strong, that they can't go to sleep, they can call the therapist. So people are never left alone. They spend the night in the therapy setting, which gives them a lot of opportunity to really relax, to rest, to not have to go home and then come back. And then the next day, um, they have they wake up, they're rested, the therapists come back, and they have at least 90 minutes more of integrative psychotherapy. Then they can't drive home. Somebody else has to come and take them home. Because we don't want people to have any responsibilities on the second day. We don't want them to have to drive. And we also say to them that while some people have learned for them that uh, taking something like 5-HTP after MDMA can make the come down easier, that we don't do any of that. We're just trying to find out what MDMA does. We encourage them to rest um, the second day, and we find that that works terrifically. Then they, they go home, and then we call them um, every day for a week just to check in, just to see how they're doing. And then they come back for in-person psychotherapy. There's several more between the first and the MDMA and the second MDMA session. And then we repeat that three times. And then there's several three, M three integrative sessions after the last MDMA, and then we evaluate them two months and 12 years later. So that's our basic therapeutic approach. And so what we've decided to do is the first session is gonna be 80 milligrams. The reason we changed from 75 milligrams to 120 and 125 is that it's extremely expensive to make the final dosage form in multiple different amounts. So we um, sat around and did some math and we figured out that if we can use 80 milligrams 
and 120 as our main doses. We can do that with just capsules of 60 milligrams and 40 milligrams, and we could save several hundred thousand dollars by doing that. And we figured it's not that much different between 75 and 80 or between 120 and 125. So our first session that people are going to get is always going to be 80 milligrams or placebo. They're not going to know which, but it will, they'll know it's either going to be 80 milligrams or placebo. And then 40 milligrams as a supplemental dose, which we, our, our approach is that we'll always be giving that unless there's some really good reason not to, which will rarely happen, but maybe that'll happen. People might feel they've had enough. Um, and then the second MDMA session, we're switching to being uh, 120 with a 60 milligram follow-up. And so again, the idea will be that that's gonna be the standard unless there's some really good reason that people just thought that um, you know the 80 milligram was fantastic for them, but we'll assume that it'll go up to 120. And then the third MDMA session is again a discussion, do they wanna stay at the 120 or go back to 80? So there's flexibility that we're building in. Some people have talked about trying to do dosing on the basis of milligram per kilogram, on the dosing body weight. But that's pseudoscience. That seems like scientific, you know, milligrams per kilogram, it's super precise. But our first phase one dose response safety study that we did that way, milligrams per kilogram dosing, the subjective experience varied more widely than we did fixed dose. And when you think about it, it's like, um, Nobody doses LSD based on body weight, <laughs> you know, or psilocybin, really. Um, sometimes that's being done, but um, psychiatric medications are not based on body weight. You know, you get certain SSRIs, they adjust the dose. So we feel that this fixed dosing is the way to go. We'll start, now, we have this three-session model, and that's what every, everybody's gonna get that three-session model. And what we have found is that people that are high in dissociation, that's a really common strategy during trauma, is to dissociate and to not be there, in a sense, to withdraw so that all this painful stuff, you're not suffering as much. But that gets to be a trap when you've removed yourself from your experience and your experience seems really frightening. And so that, that can, I, in, in extremes, can lead to uh, Dissociative identity disorder, split personalities, just a certain emotional numbness. And so we find though that people on the high on the dissociation scale tend to need more sessions than people that are not high on that scale. So many people can really do a lot of progress in the first and second session. We're very much opposed to a one session model because people, we don't want people to think about this as a one dose miracle cure and now you're changed. There are people that have had um, one dose and have been cured. And I'll tell you a story about one of those. There was a veteran that was in our study who had been debilitated for years by PTSD. And during the, everything else had failed, all the other medications and psychotherapies had failed, and sort of out of desperation, he volunteered for, a stud, for our study. And then in his first MDMA session, he realized, he started to realize that there was something that he was gaining from having PTSD, that there were advantages to being disabled with PTSD. And the advantage that he realized is that that was an expression of loyalty to the friends of his that had been killed. And that as long as he was constantly thinking about it, that he was disabled by PTSD, he couldn't lead his life, that this was the expression of loyalty to his 
brothers in arms who had died or been terribly wounded. And that that was the good part of it. And then, under MDMA, he was able to switch and see himself from the eyes of his friends who had died. And from that position, he was sort of getting into their minds, and he was realizing that they were thinking, if they could be alive to think, that they were thinking their lives had been lost, and they would not want him to throw away his life with PTSD as an expression of loyalty, that in fact they would want him to live even more. They would want him to live for them because they couldn't do it. They would want him to live as much as he could, to be as happy as he could, to be as fulfilled as he could, not to be debilitated from PTSD. And so then he said, okay, he realized that. He said, okay, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And in that moment, he was healed from PTSD. And then he said, yeah, it's, it's astonishing. Then he said to himself, I'm on opiates for pain, and I'm in somewhat addicted to opiates for pain, but I'm not really, really taking these opiates for pain. I'm taking them for escape. And he said, I don't need these opiates anymore. I'm not going to do them ever again. And then he said, I don't need drugs at all. I am cured. I don't need MDMA. I'm not even going to go to my second MDMA session. I'm done. And we said, it's super great you're done, but would you be willing to at least, you can drop out of the treatment, but at least do the outcome measures so we can see how you're doing. And he agreed to do that. And so at the two month follow up, he did not have PTSD after just one session. And so then it's getting near the 12 month follow up and he's doing fine, but he's starting to think, maybe I could learn some more from him. <laughs> you know, that was a good experience. Maybe I could learn some more. And we said, this is kind of difficult for us because you're outside the window of the protocol. You know, we have a strict protocol. It's only for people with PTSD. So we said, we'll sort this out a little bit, but at the 12 month, go ahead and take the measure. It's called the CAPS, the Clinician Administered PTSD Scale, and see if you still have PTSD. And um, as it turned out, he took the measure. He still did not have PTSD 12 months later. And that was about seven years ago. And now he's volunteering in Cambodia to help other people less fortunate than him. So it's just a tremendous story of how one MDMA session can have these profound effects. But we, we don't really want to encourage this idea of one dose miracle cure. And we also think that um, a lot of times people go deeper on the second session than on the first. So the first, they're building what's called a therapeutic alliance. They're getting to trust themselves. They're getting to trust the patient, the therapist. They're learning about the MDMA. They're learning that these therapists are there to help them, and they're building this alliance. And they get also like a tour of their traumatic histories. And so the second session is when they can go really deep, even deeper than the first session often. And we don't want them now. We it, it's a multi-million dollar decision on our part whether to go to a third session in our model or not. And what we're, what our sort of operating philosophy is that our goal is to maximize therapeutic outcome. We'll figure out how to make it more economical later, but now it's like what's the best we can do to help the most people. And we've also realized that in the second session, when people are going really, really deep, a lot of times you might touch on something that 
feel so complex or so profound, you might feel, I cannot really resolve all of this in the second session. I might not want to open it up because I know this is my last chance. And so we find that the second session goes even better when there's a third session. That gives people, it's like a cleanup. Now in our Israeli study, we only did two sessions and people did really, really well. Um, so from an economical perspective, we probably could have done it with just two sessions. But we really find that people that are high on a dissociation scale, a lot of them need the third session. Some small fraction of them will need a fourth session, but we probably wouldn't do it right away. We would let them just sit with the three sessions for six months or a year and then come back again. But that, that's how we've arrived at our model. And so what we've been able to do is um, over the last couple of months, um, we've been able to raise $27 million for phase three. Yeah. Yeah. All from donations. It really started um, about um, six years ago when Ashana Haley, who was a burner, he, he loved being here. Um, I say he, but he, he's like a he plus, uh, meaning transgender, but he never quite felt female, and he, so he was kind of like a he plus. Uh, he actually felt that he got too female at some point, um, and then took hormones to sort of bring him back. And then he realized he didn't want to be in any one particular place. He wanted to be going back and forth to see the world from different places. He was a brilliant person. Uh, the sad thing is he died at age 62. Um, in his sleep, and he left us five and a half million dollars. And this was what we decided that we would not spend it, we would save it for phase three. The only thing that we did spend of that was around 400,000 that um, he was very interested in autism, and so we did a study with autistic adults with social anxiety, where we're trying to work on the social anxiety, not the autism, and we used a bit of his money for that. And that study was done by Charlie Grove and Alicia Danforth. They've been here and camped at this camp and have talked about it in the past. And we got they got really, really good results from that. But we were able to um, sort of show that, uh, you know, there, there's multiple different um, applications for MDMA. But that was our first uh, chunk of money we decided to save for phase three. And then perhaps many of you have been over to the foam showers uh, at the foam against the machine camp. And so that's run by the Dr. Bronner Soap Camp Company. And the senior Dr. Bronner was driven crazy by the Holocaust and came out of it with this philosophy that we're all one. So that's actually brilliant, and that's right, this idea that the sort of mystical sense, how we're all connected. Um, and that's, but where he was driven crazy is he was um, obsessed with that and abandoned his children a bit. There was actually, he had a follower who crucified himself to sort of get this message across. And um, and so it takes, there's multi-generational trauma. You know, people who are traumatized can pass that on through epigenetics to their children. And, and so uh, Dr. Bronner, the original, um, sort of passed on that on to his kids and he alienated them because he went on this mission. They were even in foster care sometimes. But then his grandkids have come along and are now um, sort of, have the um, idealist mission and the practicality, and so they've now built up the uh, Dr. Bronner's from uh, about two million a year to 125 million a year in sales, and they give away 40 percent of their profits, and so they've 
uh, donated a million a year for five years to MAPS. For Facebook. Actually, Richard Rockefeller helped with, he came with me to meet with uh, David's brother and mother to explain to them that David wasn't nuts to be supporting psychedelics so much, and that ended up increasing their donations. Um, and then we've received um, two and a half million, a pledge of two and a half million from one of the early Facebook pioneers. Um, we've got a million dollars from one of the early Twitter people. We've received multiple millions from uh, FedEx inheritance. Um, and then what, what really happened is in October, um, I had a meeting with the um, deputy director of the Nationalist for Mental Health um, with uh, senior people from the VA and the Department of Defense and also the Wellcome Trust. And the Wellcome Trust is the largest charity in Europe, in England. It's got about $30 billion. And so it became clear in um, all of those meetings that they all were interested in what we were doing, but none of them would fund phase three. NIMH, Welcome Trust, um, they all wanted mechanism of action studies. How does this actually work? But the FDA doesn't care about that. The FDA cares about safety and efficacy, and so they wouldn't fund our phase three. So I was, and the Department of Defense and the VA it was still too hot politically, so I was very disappointed for a day or so, and I was thinking, this is really a bummer because we need all this more money, and it's not coming from the sources that have all these incentives to pay for it. And then I started realizing that this is fine, this is good, because now I'll be able to say that we're going to be able to raise the money, it might take longer, but it'll be a gift from the psychedelic community, from the burner community to the world, and it, we don't have to say the government helped in any way. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. When Rick was talking just now about the mechanisms involved with PTSD and why it isn't possible to simply let go of a painful memory, well, I suspect that I probably wasn't the only one who recalled the recent testimony in the U.S. Senate when a woman professor very painfully recalled an incident that took place over 30 years earlier. And everyone who watched her testimony, even those who opposed her, admitted that the incident still had a very painful hold on her mind. And, in my opinion, she most definitely would be a candidate for this new MDMA treatment. Now, I know that a lot of former members of the military are fellow saloners here. And as you know, I'm a veteran myself, and I have some friends who, well, they still haven't quite made a smooth transition back after returning from combat. And I also know that some of their family members are also suffering from PTSD-like symptoms. Well, my suggestion is, uh, if you know somebody who fits that description, well then, you may want to give them a copy of this podcast to listen to and give them a link to the MAPS page about their Phase 3 MDMA study. It, well, it may not turn out to be a help, but at least you can give it a try. I know how frustrating it can be to have a friend or family member who is living in a dark place and you feel helpless to uh, give them any aid. Well, even though telling them about the MAP study may not help, it will nonetheless help you to overcome that helpless feeling that we have when somebody close to us is slipping away. Well, next week I'll play the second half of this talk for us here in the salon. And until then, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.